I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. All right, here we go. Oh. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Okay. Blessed, blessed greetings and love. Welcome to Bob Radio. We're talking to Andy Bassford out in New York. How are you doing, Andy? I'm, I'm doing good, Carlos. Uh, hello to everybody out there at Bob Radio. Yeah, man. It's that it's that time of year. It's Bob's birthday, and it's a time to remember. Definitely a time to remember, all right? Now, Andy Bassford is a legendary guitar player. He just released an album called The Harder They Strum, but Andy has a deep and rich history in reggae music. Number one, as being a white guy involved heavily in the roots music way, way back then. I mean, hey, what's going on? Tell, tell us a little bit about your history. How, how did you get involved in the music? What's going on? Okay, uh, well, I'm, I'm from Hartford, and I grew up in a little town outside of Hartford. I mean, I was born in Hartford. All right. And I played violin and viola and orchestra, and then I saw B.B. King on TV when I was 13 and decided I wanted to play the guitar. And then there wasn't anybody around who wanted to play blues, so I ended up getting into, you know, bluesy rock stuff and played in bands in high school and college and so on. Right on. And then when I went to college, the uh, they had a movie theater there, and they had new movies every uh, twice a week. And my freshman year, The Harder They Come showed up as, a, as an import movie. Okay. And in America in 1973, unless you were a Jamaican or you were incredibly hip, you didn't know anything about reggae. You didn't know that it existed. Of course not. And of course not. <laughs> And this whole thing was, you know, was just revelatory. I had no idea right, that right, right. the music existed or anything else. I knew Jamaica was an island, but I thought they had, had Calypso or like Harry Belafonte. You know, my mom had a Harry Belafonte record. Yeah, Banana Boatman kind of, kind of stuff. About, uh, right, right. Matilda was on it, Waterboy, and those kind of things. <laughs> so, I, I have the record, too. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. So, so going from Harry Belafonte to The Heart of They Come was kind of a leap. Big time. But I I loved the movie, and I particularly fell in love with Twits and the Maytals singing Sweet and Dandy. Okay. And that just really lit a fuse under me. So, of course, uh, I'm, I'm still there, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, of course, when the when the album came out, I bought it. And I took it home to the dorm, and I tried to play it, and I realized I couldn't play the stuff, even though I could hear what the chords were. So then I got real interested. Okay. You know, so I, yeah, the, I, challenge, I the challenge was on. Right. What do you mean I can't play this? I can play jazz. How come I can't play this stuff? So, right. Very cool. So I got real into it. And then 
uh, shortly, a couple of years later, I found out that there were a Jamaicans in Hartford, which was a very, ra- very racially divided city at that point. Okay. And I, I knew there were black people, and they were uh, on the other side of town, but I didn't realize that they were, they were Jamaicans. You know, we didn't, uh, we were stupid. We didn't know. <laughs> I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. We, we, you know, we. It was kind of monolithic black people, you know, we were very ignorant. So, um, so I realized that there, um, that there were Jamaicans in Hartford and they had record shops and that you could buy reggae records there. So I eventually screwed up my courage and went over there to one of the shops and the owner took an interest in me and befriended me. And I bought a lot of records for him and I'd bring them back to the dorm and play them and everybody would go, what are you doing? What is this stuff? You know, we uh-huh. want to listen to Mahavishnu Orchestra. And <laughs> <laughs> Ravi Shankar. Right. <laughs> right, you know, right. Or um, who else was big then? You know, the... Um, like, well, Elton John you know, the, and the Stones. Carol King, you know, like all those other things, and which are, which are fine, you know, nothing wrong with them. Yeah. And I was playing in rock bands and stuff, but I had this peculiar interest in this strange music that nobody else seemed to care about very much unless they were Jamaican. Yeah. So... Um, right as I was graduating college, I went to the shop with one of my friends and who was curious about this place that I was going and spending my money at. And the owners said, you know, I'm putting on a show and we're, um, I have a band here to back Marcia Griffiths, but I need a guitar player. Would you like to audition? You know, by this time he'd found out that I was a guitar player and so on. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So I- well, I was going to say, no, I'm not ready. And my friend piped in and said, no, he plays this stuff all the time. He'd be great for it. <laughs> and so I was stuck. I had to go audition. I auditioned for the gig. I got the gig. Right. And the guys in the band were so friendly and welcoming. And I just hit it off with them. And after I graduated college, you know, that was just what I was going to do. I was going to play in a reggae band. I hadn't figured out how I was going to pay the bills doing that, but I... <laughs> my mission was clear. <laughs> yeah, you so, were set. You were bit. You were gone. Was, right. So I was playing with these guys, and there were there were no Americans in 1976. This was. Mm-hmm. There might have been people in New York who were doing it, but certainly nobody in Hartford was doing it. Nobody I knew was doing it. All right. And, um, so I played with these guys for a while, and then uh, when they were, I they were was, called the Venturians, right? Yes. Yes, the Mighty Venturians. The Rhythm Masters of the Now Sound. That was our tag phrase. Oh, wow. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Very <laughs> cool. Very cool. Um, we played a mixture of reggae and R&B and Calypso, which was then starting to be called Soka, and then ballads like Wonderland by Night and things like that, um, which was kind of what the Jamaican audience in Hartford wanted to hear, a mixture of things, okay. kind of like what um, Byron Lee would have done at the time. All right. But not nearly, not nearly as well executed. We weren't very good. <laughs> but anyway, um, Horace Andy was living in Hartford, and he came by the the rehearsal, and he was going to use the band on a record, and he decided I was the only one he wanted to use on the record, so he, he asked me to go play, play a session with him, and uh, I had no idea how the music business worked, and I thought it was strange that somebody would be asking me to make a record, and I wasn't in the band, but... That is uh, an amazing anybody, story. Horace Andy asked you to go down to uh, New York to record. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, we recorded at A and R, and I was one of these guys that always read read the liner notes. So I was uh, when I found out it was A and R, I was terrified, and 
I walked in there and the engineer was saying something. Yeah, Kiss was in here the night before, and I'm going, oh, oh wait my a god, what? Wow, I'm playing in the same studio as Kiss. I mean, I've never been in a studio before, so amazing, uh, amazing. Anyway, we recorded in the light. Seven songs were done in New York. Three were done in Jamaica. And it turned out to be one of his most popular albums. And then the Amazing. dub album from that was one of the very first King Jammy dub albums, and that became popular. And in the meantime, I had left the reggae band. I was playing sort of top 40 rock and roll because there was more money. All right. And much to my regret, I left these guys, you know, but they, they understood. And I stayed in contact with everybody. All right. And so I played around Hartford for a couple of years, but I still would go to the record shops and the West Indian Club to see shows. And I Very kept cool. you know, my contacts in the community. Very cool. So Very 1980, cool. I decided I w I'm going to move to uh, New York because Hartford is, you know, the, the small time and I want to be big time. Okay. <laughs> uh, so um, I'm, I moved to, I, I go to New York and I go to Island Records. Because the only person I know in New York in the music business is Lister, Hugh, and Lowe at Island Records. And long story short, I come in there and don't have an appointment. And Max Romeo sets his uh, royalty statement on fire, so I get an appointment. <laughs> so I'll be explained in the book. And All right. uh, Lister, Hugh, and Lowe, who's the A&R guy, said, can you find Horace for me? And I said, sure. He, he said, I want to make a record with him. So uh, Horace said you want to come with me to Jamaica to make this record for Lister? And I said, sure. Wow. And I, I'd, always, I'd always dreamed of going, but I had no idea how to get there. And all the Jamaicans I knew were quite happy being in America. So I, didn't, <laughs> I it, it didn't really, uh, I just couldn't figure out. I, it was hard enough for me to figure out how to get to New York, let alone to get to Jamaica. Right on. And heart was very provincial then, you know? So uh, anyway, we went down in, uh, July of 19, June or July, July 15th, 1980. And we came off the plane. And of course, Jamaica is in the middle of the worst election in its history. And people are shooting each other and uh, all these horrible things are happening. And I'm thinking everybody's going to be like these lovely guys in the mighty Venturians. People died in West Kingston last night. And I go, what have I got myself into? So after three weeks of this, uh, Horace had enough and, and went back. And the day he was supposed to, the day before he went back, we went to see a show at the Carib and Junjo Laws was there. Wow. So, Junjo you know, Laws. And I went backstage with, uh, with Horace and Freddie McKay, who we were living with to say hello. And Junjo saw me and said, well, who is this guy? What is he doing here? Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they said he's a very good guitar player from America. And Jun just says, bring him to Channel One tomorrow. Oh, wow. So I went to Channel One, and I walk in there with my guitar, and my father had made me this pedal board out of wood. My father was a very good amateur carpenter. And in those days, hardly anybody, even in America, had pedal boards. So I was kind of unique having a pedal board. How awesome is that? In, I walk into Channel One. Everybody's giving me the fisheye, except for this wonderful man, to, you know, Winston Bowen, a.k.a. Bo P. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know Bo P. Right, so that all these people are in the control room. Rootslet Radix is recording. It's the best sounding reggae I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe that I'm in Jamaica and listening to this session. What a dream come and, true, huh? Wow! Right, just to get in the studio, just to actually be in the studio. And yeah. I had all the Channel One albums and everything, so I was, you know, going you were out. well you were, you were well versed in what they were doing. 
Well, I thought I was. <laughs> well, I, you, you knew the music that they were playing. Right, that's true. But what I didn't realize then was how fast they did it. Because I, I was used to, in America, you know, rehearsing for six months and, you know, your, your top 40 sets, you know, five sets a night. And then right. getting an agent, going out and getting gigs. Yeah. And we did it alike very quickly. We did it in a day, basically, with some overdubs. Wow. But that, Horace and I, Horace had at least showed me the songs before we went in. And, and what was going on at Channel One was totally different. A singer would go in, he would gesticulate, the musicians would do some stuff that sounded like random noise. Then somebody would count something in, all of a sudden it would sound like a tune, and two takes later it was a tune. Wow. And then another singer would come out and they'd do the same thing, and they were doing three or four of these things an hour, and I'm going, this is impossible. This is how, There's no music. How are they doing this? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I walk into Channel One, and Bo P, nobody's saying anything really, and Bo P looks at me and goes, hello, I am Bo P. He sticks out his hand. What is your name? And I tell him. Yeah. I'm Andy Bassford. I'm from, I'm from Connecticut. And he goes, it's nice to meet you. What is that thing under your arm? It's the pedal board, you know, with yeah. the, the AC cord dangling down and everything. Yeah. So, so I start showing him what everything does. Because Bo P's a guitar player, too. Yes. Yeah. And that was the key to everything that happened was the guitar players accepted me. Very cool. Very you know, cool. The, so all of a sudden, instead of me being this weird stranger, Bo P and I are talking about gear. And he had such stature there that the fact that he was welcoming and that he was treating me as though I had something to offer him. Yeah, fellow musician, so, as you get treated yeah, as your so, equal. Right. The whole the whole tone of the thing changed, and you know, it was it went from being extremely uncomfortable. Oh, believe to me, believe me. I I've been to Jamaica a bunch of times. I've been like only light skinned person around a whole a bunch around a whole bunch of Jamaicans. You're the you're definitely get, getting looked at and oogled and just studied the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's it's definitely a little unnerving sometimes. It, you know, and it's uh, I wasn't I wasn't surprised by it really, but uh, right, right. You, know, you were used to it hard, by then. It's hard to handle if you're not used to it. Yeah. So, anyway, after a few songs, uh, Junjo says, uh, "Johnny guitar, go in there and string up." So I go into Channel One, and you know, it's Roots Radix, Soul is the other guitar, Soul Radix, and Gladdy Anderson, and Winston Wright, and Style and Flava, and Bingy, yeah. and and uh, I think the Sky Juice on that one, but Sticky was. There were different guys they used, but I think that day it was Sky Juice. Okay. So we're tuning it, you know, we're tuning up, and my first shock is that the piano is not tuned to the same pitch as the organ because nobody tunes the piano. <laughs> do, I, do, I tune, do I tune to the piano or the organ? And then like, why are you asking this? Oh, man, so made, how I funny. Call. You can actually tell those Channel One records because if the piano and the organ are playing in the same register, you can hear how out of tune the piano is. It's almost like a signature. Oh, wow, and how intense. So, so I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, how to tune up. And then Winston Wright is waiting for me to get ready. He noodles something, and I play it back at him, and he perks up his ears. So he plays something else, and I play back at him, and he, we jam a little bit, and all, he's going, oh, okay, you're not deaf. That's good. So <laughs> then Barrington Levy comes in, and Winston says, okay, it's time to get to work. So Barrington starts singing this tune, and Gladdy finds the chords. And I'm looking baffled, and Flava says, just play what I'm playing. So I did that, and we did a take, and I said, I think I could do it better. And everybody says, shh, shh, get all right, man. So then <laughs> I comes in, and the same thing happens. I, 
I'm baffled. Flabba says, follow me. I follow Flabba. And then Bo Peep comes back out and says, okay, I'll take over now. And I go back in. And it's sort of like being hit by a bus. I played two songs with Roots Radix at Channel One. And I have Man. no idea what's going on. So That is crazy. Um, That's so fun. So anyway, um, Junjo, long story short, um, Junjo doesn't pay me then, but we hang out for the rest of the session. The next day he comes to idle his rest and looks for me and says, Johnny Guitar, here's your money. I have more work for you. He says, you're going to stick around, right? I said, yeah. He says, I have more work for you. Stick around. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. That was the first day at Channel One. And then I started hanging out at Idler's Rest, which is this very dubious alley um, uh, between Randy's and Joe Gibbs then. Okay. And hanging out with Roots Radix all day. And I met Gregory Isaacs and all these people were just, you know, on the corner. And I just was on the corner with them, you know. Without any, you know, we none of us had any money, and we were hoping there would be a session, and we were just all in the corner together. Yeah, and I learned more in those six, first six months I was in Jamaica than I'd learned in the previous twenty five years, twenty four years. Amazing, amazing but, you story. Know, about street and how to survive and how to deal with people and how to see what's what's coming. Yeah, man. And I started getting sessions. I got one for Joe Gibbs, and I hung out there. I kept. I, I there was a guy down there named Jimmy Becker, a harmonica player. Mm-hmm. Another American guy mm-hmm. who had been there before me, and he was actually in We the People before I was. And he said, "Always walk with your guitar. People respect musicians here. Nobody's going to steal it. If anything, they're going to ask you to play it for them." I, I don't think it's that way anymore, but it was then. Right, I hear you. And and that was the best advice I ever got because when I started walking with my guitar and going to the studios, I started getting work. Very and, cool. Uh, and they, you know, I did it at Joe Gibbs, and I had all of Joe Gibbs' records, and that was really where I wanted to play because they, they and Channel One were my favorite studios as a listener. And I just hung out long enough, and Errol T finally got fed up and said, what do you do? And I said, I play the guitar. He says, come by tomorrow. I'll give you an audition. So the audition was uh, If I Follow My Heart on the Foul Play album. <laughs> uh, first A&M album with Dennis. That was my audition. What you hear on the record is one take and one punch. Wow. I wow. Heard, he said, I, you know, that I, I, it was a magical day. I took the guitar out of the case. It was in tune. He put the track up. I heard the music right away. He said, um, play some fills and I want a solo. And, and I, everything that you hear on the record is what I played. Amazing. The only punch was because I didn't know where the solo was. So... <laughs> So we wow. punched and I got the solo and I went out and he said, that's great. And, um, and he wrote me a little script and he said, I have more work for you if you, you stick around. So that was, that was it. And I started playing the studios and then I went to North, North coast for five weeks with a hotel band and did that. So I got to play with the fire eaters and the, the dancers and all stuff. Wow. And then at, after six months, the guys in culture asked me to do a tour with them. Oh, wow. Um, and come back to America, but the plane tickets didn't come for me or anybody in the band. And they went up there and used an American band. And then Lloyd Parks asked me to join We the People. Amazing. And I went home for Christmas. And I said, yes, absolutely. Um, so I went home for Christmas and saw my parents and they said, okay, you had your Jamaican experience, right? I said, no, I'm going back. I got a job. <laughs> said, got a job? You're going back? I said, yeah, I'm playing with one of the best bands in the country. Yeah. For sure, they were—they definitely were the best band in the country at the time. 
that yeah they mm-hmm. they were they were really the pace setters you know dean fraser was in it bubbler was in it bopi mambo chico we're, talk, uh, we're talking about lloyd parks and we the people band lloyd parks and we the people you know all, joe gibbs and the professionals basically was lloyd parks and we the people okay basically most the Sly and bobby did some stuff but a lot of the records were we the people so these are the guys that i wanted to be with and i was with them amazing and i couldn't have been happier it was just amazing and they they taught me so much they they tortured me unmercifully because i was the new guy and i didn't understand patois very well and, <laughs> and i i wasn't particularly socially adept then so they really <laughs> gave me a hard time but woe be unto anybody who tried to mess with me who wasn't in the band right for sure for sure they're very loyal and then 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 and m signed dennis you know unbeknownst to me and then six months later we were touring with Den- dennis uh, you know for a&m records and then everything just accelerated people saw me with dennis the session calls accelerated um you know we were just really really busy for five years and then the uh i got married and then we got pregnant and then the drum machine came in and we the, the original we the people split up and a lot of the original guys went off to form 809 and it was kind of a crossroads for me because I had a drum machine. I was starting to get session calls on the drum machine. Oh, wow. And because I, I, you know, Sly had one and a couple of the Peter Ashburn had one and I had one and Winston Wright, I think, had one. Okay. And I could see, I could see that it was going to change the way that we made records. And I was really a purist then. That wasn't what I came to Jamaica to do. Right. And all my friends were drummers and I go, I can stay here and put my friends out of work or I can go back to America and play rock and roll again. Right. So that's kind of what I decided to do. I gave Lloyd notice, which was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life because the guy was so good to me. Sure. And he was really like, I tell people he was my musical father. My real father was wonderful, but he was the furthest thing from a musician. It was really with Lloyd Parks that I learned professionalism and on the road and how to run a band and how to run a rehearsal and all these things that I use all the time now. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the band taught me a bunch of stuff, but really Lloyd showed me what a band leader is supposed to be. He was the man. To. He's the man. He still is. The yeah, he still, still is the man. Five years later. Yeah, he's still playing. He's still doing great stuff. I just saw him. Right. I, I just saw him interview with uh, on on stage with Winfred Williams just like last week, two weeks ago. Right. So they just had their forty fifth anniversary, I think, a couple weeks ago, or forty fourth, something like that. And, you know, so that was the best possible learning situation because that band backed everybody. And then we played dances in the country, and the second set would be the history of reggae in reverse. We'd start from whatever was on the radio and work our way backwards through Rocksteady and then Scat and end with O'Carolina. And, of course, it was Kiss Me Ross, Bumba Claude, excuse my language. (laughs) It's okay. Everybody would sing the real words out the country. Yeah. uh, so I learned these tunes on the bandstand. And Crazy. when I wasn't learning the tunes on the bandstand, I was listening to the oldies shows and just trying to absorb everything about Jamaican guitar that I could. And and then I was recording all the time, so it was really total immersion in the music and living there. And, Amazing story, man. You know, playing with the best musicians of the era. So I went back to America, and I thought I was going to be in rock and roll again. And... Another long story short, uh, they owed me five hundred dollars from the last tour. That again, that's the story. Copeland, Copeland, right? Copeland, yeah. Copeland Forbes had borrowed five hundred bucks from me to get us out of a jam, which was a serious jam. 
When you were on tour with Dennis Brown. Yes, this is with Dennis Brown, Gregory Isaacs, and Third World, the first American reggae sunsplash tour in 1985. So so, so Copeland borrows $500 from you to keep the tour going. He owes you $500. You don't know if you're ever going to get the money again. Right. Then I find out they're playing the Felt Forum, which is now the theater at Madison Square Garden. So I I call, you know, those guys always used to call me. So they call me as soon as they get to New York, and I go, is Copeland there? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, I'm coming down. Put me on the list. My name gets all left off the list, but Robbie Shakespeare sees me and basically bullies the guard into letting me in. <laughs> I go backstage, and Copeland sees me, and he goes, Andy, I have your money. And he, he, we go in the other room, and he pays me. And then he says, and then I go back and say hello to everybody, and they say, where's your guitar? We're about to go on. And I go, you want me to play? They go, yeah. <laughs> and really, I thought awesome. I was done with reggae in 1985. You know, when I came back in 85, I thought I was done. Wow. And here I is, 86, and they asked me to play with them again. And it worked out that they had to go on before I could go home and get a guitar, but they said, we want you back. So for the next three years, I played with Dennis wherever he was. Amazing. And I sort of commuted, and then he decided he was going to go to Ethiopia for six months, and Toots called. And so Toots, Toots, was wor- Toots worked more than Dennis. He didn't pay as well at the time, but he worked all the time, and... I had a baby and stuff, and I was, you know, I needed to work. All right, so you went and played so, with Toots. And that lasted 20-something years. Oh, wow. And then and then after a couple of years, Derek called me to play with Sagittarius and Yellow Man on a couple of American tours that happened to occur during downtime with Toots. So I was playing with Toots, and I was playing, playing with, with, Yellow with Yellow Man, Sagittarius and Band. Toxins, the, and those are like the best now. bands ever. For, right. for reggae, dan- for reggae and, and ragamuffin the, dance hall and stuff. You know, the, the Sagittarius and We the People. I mean, people have their favorites, but they were the two best. I they, they, are, they are the, they, the originals, foundation. Right. Foundation <clears throat> reggae so, music, man. So also, um, Coxon was up in New York at that point. You know, he kind of left Jamaica behind. He went back occasionally, but basically he was operating out of New York. And I went in there to do a session with Winston Grennan. And after the session, he said, look, you do session work. And I started laughing. I said, that's all I did in Jamaica. And he goes, well, uh, I need a guitarist. Would you work for me? I said, sure. So wow. I ended up working for him from about 86, 87 until a week or two before he passed. Oh, my goodness. And a lot of that work was replicating things that were recorded on two tracks so he could mix dub albums. What he would have me do was try to play back the original parts as close as I could to whoever had played them. And he had some, he had like the original bass and he eventually, he eventually gave me the original guitar amp from studio one, which I have. Oh, wow. And so we had some of the, uh, like the real gear and he had the old microphone. So he would have me sit, sit down and listen to these old tunes and try to play the bass exactly like Baga or Brian Atkinson or whoever had played it back in the Bagger day. Bagger Brown. We're talking about Bagger Brown. Yeah. Uh, but no, Baga Walker. Baga Walker. Brown is an MC guy. Um, okay. Brian Atkinson, or who's the other one? Boris Gardner. There are a few of them, you know. Didn't Baga so, play with um, uh, Style Scott in the, in the Dub Syndicate? He might have. Um, he he used to play with Black Uhuru. He played with Black right. Uhuru for a while. He played with Jimmy Cliff for a while. He, he and Pablo Black used to do a lot of things together, and they worked okay. for Cox for a while. Yeah, Pablo. Um, yeah, man, awesome. Yeah, he's one so of the those, first one of the first Jamaicans I ever met. Was Pablo oh, Black? Guy, 
he was, I, I always loved working with him. I wrote both of them. Very cool, very cool, very cool dude. Now, amazing amazing history, amazing history, Andy. We could go on for a long, long time, but let's talk a little bit about your brand new record that you just released last year, The Harder They Strum. It's all based from from, from the movie that you went to in your freshman college, in your freshman or sophomore in college. It took you to this little whirlwind of uh, experience with Jamaicans and Jamaican music and recording with all the greats and meeting all the greats and all that stuff. Excuse me. Meeting all the greats and all that stuff. And then now you just produced your own album with you fronting it. It's an instrumental album of The Harder They Come, right? Tell us more about it. Okay. Um, just to sum up the career thing really quickly, after um, after the Twitch thing ended, Monty Alexander called me, and I've been working oh, with him wow. the last week. So that was, it's an amazing gig. It's a jazz-slash-reggae band that switches seamlessly from one idiom to the other in the middle of a song. And it's it's great fun. He's amazing. He's amazing. With him, yeah, he's, he's just he's just a genius, and he's a great guy to work for. Wow. So I've been doing that, and then um, I decided I was going to do my own record. And originally, I just recorded "Rivers of Babylon." Basically, it was a, a drop for a radio station. Okay. And I thought if I'm going to record ten seconds, I might as well record the whole thing. I put it out on. Uh, TuneCore just as a single to see what happened, like an acoustic version of it. Mm-hmm. And some people bought it. And I said, oh, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so then I thought, what else do I want to record? And the next thing I wanted to record was Many Rivers to Cross because I used to play it in various bands and in clubs and it would always go over. All right. I thought, well, I know, I know people like the way I play that live, so that should be the next thing. So I did then I thought again, and I said, well, if I'm going to record two songs from that album, I already recorded one. If I'm thinking about a second, maybe I should just redo the whole album. Very and cool idea. My thinking was, nobody knows me unless they look at CDs and read four-point type, you know? But <laughs> <laughs> when you see some video with, like, you know, Refugee from a Rock Band backed by the drummer, you know, flailing around, I mean, you've People have kind of seen me, but they don't really know who I am necessarily. They just know sort of that I exist. Well, I, I, saw, I saw a Facebook picture today with you in it. A whole bunch of uh, black Jamaicans, and then you on the far end, <laughs> on the end with your guitar. Oh, that, that, was the, that was We the People. Peter, the late Peter Simon actually took that picture between gigs. We had a morning gig in Mo Bay, and then we had an afternoon gig in Ocho Rios. And he caught us right outside the hotel about 10 minutes before we went on stage. And, Super cool uh, picture. I love that picture. So, Super cool. Uh, so anyway, the um, I thought about it, and I said, well, nobody knows me, but everybody likes reggae knows that album. So if I redo it as guitar instrumentals, and, and, and one out of every 20 people who bought the original, original album by mine, I'll be in great shape. So... I, I thought about how to do it, and I said, you know, back in the day we recorded with everybody in the room together, at least, and it was a lot of fun, and now we do things just kind of like word processing. You come in there, and everything is there, and there's a drum machine, and there's keyboards, and, you know, in New York, a lot of times people put the music down one instrument at a time because of space limitations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so the bass player come in one day and play, and then I'll come in, and then keyboard player or whatever right right and i thought you know it was fun in the old days we just used to get together in room and play it was jam great. and everybody and all the records that i played on which you know i don't there are hundreds now i guess 
the ones people are asking me about all the time are the ones where we were all in the room together playing all the Roots Radix stuff. Oh, wow. Those are the records out of everything I've played on. So I thought, well, if that's what people really like after all these years, I should make my record the same way. Maybe there's something about that way of Very cool. Very like. cool. So we did almost the entire record live. The only things that weren't live are New Kingston singing because one of them was out of town the day we cut the tracks. Okay. Everybody except Steve, the guitar player, is on the record as a player. And then when Steve came into town, I went to their their house and we did the record. We did the vocals. Courtney and the Sons. Courtney and the Sons. Yeah, Courtney and Tahir and young Courtney. Yeah. And then Steve, um, who might as well be a son. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I I don't know if he technically is or not, but the... um, that's what, know, that's, what, that's, that's what they say. That's what I've, I've never heard anything different. No, that, that as far as I, you know, they're, they're family, and I've known those guys literally since they were in the crib, so it was a blast having them on the record. How fun. And Courtney Sr. is one of my oldest friends. I met him, like, my first show in Jamaica. Oh, wow. But a, a guest appearance for the Ethiopian Orthodox Church in Linston. Wow. I, I sat in with Bongo Herman, and they the Dread gave me $6 for bus fare. I was really flattered. <laughs> Because <laughs> I wasn't on the bill and I wasn't in the band or anything, but he gave me six dollars. I was like, "Wow, really? that's pretty cool." So, I've I've known Courtney since those days. He was playing with Cedric Brooks, and wow. we're still very close friends. We work together whenever we can. But you know, he got really busy with New Kingston, so I don't see him much anymore. Um, so anyway, that was the thinking. Let's get everybody in the studio together like we did in the old days, and we did it even. We went even further. We got so old school the songs with the female singers on at the Soul Sisters 6, we cut those live with the band. Oh, wow. We, you know, the, that was it. What a vibe. It's a great record, man, for sure. Thank you. And I think the reason that came out so well is largely the, the fact that we did everybody, to get, everybody together. And everybody on the record is a great player. But when you when you know you can fix something, when you know you can go back and overdub and fix the mistake, you let down a little bit, even if you don't mean to. Right, I know what you mean. But, but if you know that whatever you play is going to be on the record, and I made sure to tell everybody this before they went, and I said, we have three hours. We have three hours to get two songs. Whatever we play is going on the record. <laughs> First of all, everybody goes, Really? haven't done that one before so that you've got their interest and second of all they step up their game because it's now it's like a gig yeah but now it's like a really high profile gig that's getting recorded so everybody brought their a game and that's what you hear on the record How fun. you hear these really great players being challenged in a way that they're rarely challenged anymore super cool record and, and of course monty grew up doing that as did i and some of the guys on the record grew up doing it but a lot of the younger guys had never done it that way before and amazing, the women amazing. never had. They were they were floored that I trusted them enough to do it, but I knew they could do it. Of course, man. How so, fun. What a great, what a great, great thing. So how many tracks, exact duplicate of The Heart of They Come? It's all the same songs in the same order in the original keys. Wow. Wow, wow. So, and, and it was meant to be played as an album. All right. The, you know, the sequencing and the arrangements and everything on it. How are cool. Struck- the way that people used to do when they do vinyl. I know everything is Spotify and playlists and buying your favorite individual tune. But 
And that's fine. I mean, I'm happy if somebody just likes one song on it and buys it. That's great for me. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled. But the thing to me was, if you want to listen to it as a listening experience like we did back in the day when people would, you know, open up the... Uh, oh God. The, the, double al- the double albums and listen to it side one, side two, side three, side four, right in a row. Right. And, you know, and, you're, and you're, you're clean, people are cleaning the weed on the album cover and reading the liner notes. You know. um, exactly. It's kind of a... Uh, it's kind of a throwback to that way of listening to music. And since that was the way we listened to it, you know, we listened to albums and we just poured over them like they were the Bible. You know, I know, we, man, it's so fun. Um, you get to know every scratch in your own record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, for the people that really like that stuff, you can listen to it that way. And I put really extensive credits on it for people who care about that stuff, because I do. Yeah. And. Um, I got this wonderful artist named Earth who used to draw Sonic the Hedgehog for Marvel. Oh, wow. And Very he now cool. plays keyboard for Junior Marvin. Oh, wow. Great, great guy. Great artist. And I said, I want you to redo the cover, but put me in there instead of Jimmy Cliff. And he went nuts. He couldn't believe it. You know, I said, I want cartoons. He goes, yeah. you got the right guy. So he worked for weeks on that cover. He just kept sending me things. Everything looked better than the time before. Well, that, that's that's going to be the cover of your interview on, on, on the, on the website. <laughs> right. So, so, so if you, uh, there's actually a commercial on, uh, my YouTube channel that I did with Gordon. Simone Gordon, one of the singers on the record who actually, you know, went to acting school. And, uh, she, I said, can you imitate a sexy Jamaican? She said, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see the cover on the on the YouTube thing if you don't want to you know you can see it online CD Baby has the record it's on all the digital sites you can buy the album through my website uh, then VP approached me you know the big distribution company and they have it available oh how awesome and, and now it's gone to the jam band people I always thought that the reggae audience and the jam band audience should coexist mm-hmm. and some of those people used to come to Toots shows, but none of the reggae groups ever made a step toward jam band land, really. No. And those people come to our shows. So after I had marketed it to the traditional Jamaican radio and so on, uh, I'm working with a company called Lee's Homegrown Music, and they're trying to get it out to the jam band community and jam band radio, because I think with the long extended instrumental solos, it's something, and the fact that they have, most of those people know the record, or at least know Toots. Yeah. I thought, let me see if it can go to those people too. Maybe they'll like it. I don't know, but my feeling is that, you know, I'm really proud of it, and I think it's an amazing. It's really cool. Somebody who like really likes music would like it if they get a chance to hear it. So it's now my job to try to get people to hear it. Yeah. No. No. We're gonna. We're. I'm gonna. We're gonna play some here on Bob Radio. We can get it in there and. uh do some features. Maybe we'll do it on, on even on the on the big Sunday show too, man. Because it's really really cool stuff. You know, it's been an honor and a pleasure talking to you. I love your history. We we we've talked for about a couple hours now between me and you uh, getting this interview all nice. And it's you've you've sifted down. I think you need to write a book about your whole career. And uh, the, I think it would sell. I think it would sell. The book is coming this year. I've I've been talking about it forever. Okay. I'm not getting any younger, and really the. Per- it took me three years to get the record out. It took 30 hours to record it. It took me three hours, uh, three years, sorry, to, to mix to, it. To produce and it and get it all out. myself up about it. But um, now that the album is out and people can hear the musical story, 
it, I think it's time to get the actual history on, you know, on it recorded because a lot of the people I worked with aren't here anymore. And they told me stuff that I think people ought to know about what they did as well as what I did. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I, it's, I, it's, it's such a great, great story. Now, we talked about, I mean, the story about you getting from college to the record store. I love that whole story. There's a whole another another hour to talk about that, kind of what you what you went through and, and the personality that you met at the stores and getting your first record and how you got tipped off to even going to the record stores and all that stuff. So much history is there, man. And we're going to have to continue some other time because we're coming up on 40 minutes on this interview. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, I was trying to limit it to nine. Good luck with we me. Have, we have, no, I'm going to keep the whole, the whole interview in its entirety. We're going to play it just like we have it right here, right now. And, Andy, it's been a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great little vibe. It's a great album. Again, it's called The Heart of the Strum by Andy Basford, uh, a virtuoso guitar player that got turned on to Jamaican music and toured with all the greats, met all the greats, and produced his own album. Yeah, man. Wow. Okay. Thank, Carlos, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, man. It's, uh, it's an honor to be asked about this stuff. I'm glad I remember most of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an amazing story. I love, I want to hear more. I want to read the book. And, um, you know, we wish you the best and we're going to support you, Andy. I really appreciate that. And to anybody who's listening and enjoys it, many, many, many thanks. And to anybody who's ever paid hard-earned money to see me play, even more thanks, because that's why I'm still here. Yeah, man. All right. I'm going to stop right there. That's officially over. So we just say... Okay, um, cool. Yeah, man. <clears throat> um well, I, I must have seen you play because I've seen Dennis, I've seen Toots uh, for the last 25 years, so I I definitely have seen you play. I know Twiggy and, the, and some of the guys the, in the Toots' you're, band. You're in San Diego, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we played we played the belly up every freaking tour, sometimes twice oh, yeah. a yeah, I was there with Mike Keisha. I was good friends with Great Mike Keisha. Good, good friends with Mike Keisha. Oh, what a lovely man. Yeah. And really and he him. was the one that you know he he was the one that uh, had me tour with Culture you know yeah oh okay. man yeah he's he was a great he told me when he moved in next door to Gregory Isaac I I, I know his whole story too man he's a, another character another character oh he he was so far into it and he was you know uh, as I'm sure you know he had this wonderful business and when he was in college he was one of the first people to realize that it was a good idea to videotape bands. <laughs> I, he and a friend, I guess, had a video camera, and they just got this idea. Uh, let's go to the bands and ask if we can videotape their show. And this is the early 70s. You know, nobody was doing this. Mike's a little older than I am. Yeah. And he said, we thought it would be really difficult, but it turned out that all, almost all the people we asked were, were really excited about the idea that we would videotape them. And 